We've been sharing some things that have really built a fire under me. I have to tell you I'm excited because I show so little emotion, but inside I'm really excited. And, and this is having an impact on me. And the reason I wanted to do this is because I know that we have not understood things properly. And David has brought so much documentation and uh, you can tell by listening to him that he knows what he's talking about. And I tell you, we have a uh, government in the United States that really was birthed in revival, birthed from God. And today it's being turned in the opposite direction to where we are being made to feel like we are outside of, of what's mainstream when the truth is that the secularization of the United States is the thing that's the anomaly. How did this change since we have such strong roots? We've talked about that the church stepped out of the public mm -hmm. square and quit preaching messages from the Bible as relating to government, and that left a vacuum. And uh, we started talking yesterday about the education system, how that they stepped in, and they have literally rewritten history. And mm -hmm. and sometimes out and out, like this book that you were talking about, The Godless Constitution, it's an absolute lie and perversion. But then a lot of the problem is just the ignorance, the things that they have removed from history that we don't have the knowledge to be able yeah, to refute the It's claims. not a lie unless you know what the truth is. And that's the problem. And a lot of innocent people will buy into this thing, but the scripture says you can believe a lie and be damned too. And so it doesn't matter that you sincerely were wrong in your belief. That's why you have to go back and know what the truth is. You have to go back and dig out facts. That's why Paul was so high on the Bereans, because they always went back to dig out what he said to see if he was really telling the truth. And that becomes incumbent on us to do that. And, you know, this is something, and as you say, where we are right now in the secular America is this is, this is a new thing. And if people think it's not, I'm just going to pull something right here. This is a kind of fun piece. It's called uh, Forest and Flame in the Bible. It's put up by the U.S. Department of Agriculture in the 1960s. And it's, wow. here's what the Bible says about forestry and about... And, and what they're trying to do is we had a lot of forest fires. Look at the pack. I think everybody recognizes Smokey Bear in America, but he's praying. <laughs> this is the Department of Agriculture. You've got Smokey Bear praying. And that's in the 60s. This is in the 60s. I wouldn't have ever believed And, and that. they've got in here, they said, now we have other, we have a, a forest and forest devastation in the Bible, trees in the Bible. They've got all these things on what the Bible says about all this. That's our U.S. federal government in the 60s. We're not talking that long ago. Uh, and, you know, we think it's all secular. No, where we are as a secular America now is a brand new thing, and it ain't working well. I mean, we got the stats. The problem is, is it's like the frog boiling in water. Yeah. Um, it, just from minute to minute, it's not that big a deal. But from where you start to where you end, that's a big problem. Well, we can see in our, uh, I mean, current, man, we have made the greatest steps away from some of our founding principles into, into socialism and things like this that we have ever made. And it's just happened nearly without us. What I have found, it's it, amazing. very interestingly, in, in dealing with this in media, I found that when you say socialism is bad, you don't get a reaction. You say, do you know what socialism is? Not really. And the problem we have is nobody can define socialism today. We used to know that. We used to know what fascism was, what socialism was, what theocracy was. We used to know all the definitions. We don't anymore. We're, we're pretty ignorant on a lot of the stuff. But I can tell you that from a biblical position, one of the great reasons, and, and I'm going to go to my Jewish rabbi friend who really helped me with this. He said, when you look at what happened in Genesis 9, he said, that's where they built the Tower of Babel. 
And he said, now what really ticked God off and the reason God came down at the time was when God came down, the cry of the people was, not let's build a tower, but let's make bricks. He said, now why would that tick God off? Why does God care about whether you're making bricks or not? He said, this is the first attempt at socialism. He said, with bricks, you make everyone look the same, act the same, be the same, we're all the same. He said, God has living stones and living rocks. Everyone is totally different. Socialism wants to conform everyone to be the same. They're all going to be the same. They're all going to be the common workers. They're all going to have common property. They all have common jobs. He said, God wants you to be an individual and different over here. He said, that's the problem with bureaucracy. Bureaucracy treats everybody like they're a brick. They're all the same. And that's the problem with socialism is you're a brick when you need to be a living stone that's unique, like a snowflake, like a DNA cell, like an iris and an eye, every one of them is different. And that's what got God ticked off, was the attempt mm-hmm. to take what He had made and standardize it into let's all be the same. And we've already talked about this, like Plymouth Colony and those original things. It did not they work. tried a form of socialism where everybody shared everything equally to get a foothold, and it didn't work. They nearly starved, and it was not until they began to start giving incentives mm-hmm. to people who produced on their own, gave them their personal property. That's when they began to work. And that's, that makes the point of Deuteronomy 6, that if you'll do the things He's commanded, it'll be for your prosperity and your success. He did not want socialism, and when you use it, it's not going to work right. He does want the the free market kind of what we would call ethical capitalism. That is a biblical model, and when you use it, it works right too. Yeah, and you don't want to see people fail, but people need to have the right to fail. If you sit there and guarantee them that they're going to be taken care of with no effort on their part, you are enabling people to stay in that Well, and and if you don't let them fail, then they're no longer accountable for their behavior. And then why would you have a hell or a heaven if that's the case? If you're not going to be accountable, that's right. There's there's no absolute. There's no heaven and hell. It's all here because I'm not accountable. Well, now we got trouble. Now we got government really destroying Christian theology by teaching everybody that there is no accountability for what you do. And then why would you believe in Christianity that teaches accountability if there is no accountability? That nobody succeeds, nobody fails. You don't give out failing grades. My granddaughter doesn't get A, B, Cs, and Ds. It's all, I forgot what they are, but they're good or acceptable. But they don't fail people. Well, see, Paul said they all run in a race, but only one receives the prize. So you run like you're going to receive the prize. That's competition to me. There's a biblical precedent. You you got Daniel. He says, let's have a little competition here. I got my friends here. You guys eat your food. We'll eat our food. We'll have a competition. We'll have a test. see who passes the test. Or how about Elijah when he said, you call on your God, I call on my God. Let's have a little competition here. I mean, God is into (laughs) competition. He said, test me, try me, see see me, you know, put me to the test. God's into competition. And for us to run from competition is not a biblical paradigm. It is a nice secular paradigm. It does not work. You know, I just saw that they were doing a poll and every major denomination has decreased in their percentage. And the only thing that's going up is Wicca and humanism secularism, people that claim no affiliation. And I think that the Pentecostal charismatic had a slight increase, but still a very small percentage. Mm -hmm. But that reflected that our nation is becoming increasingly secular. Therefore, we're moving away from a biblical or an ethical capitalism. We're moving into socialism. All of these things are interconnected. They are. And, And it all goes back to, in the church, we have made the gospel very irrelevant. It is good for your fire insurance and salvation, but it's not good for your day-to-day living. It won't know. It won't help you know how to invest your money. Forty-one percent of Americans have stocks, bonds, some kind of invest. It won't help you with that. It won't help you know how to get a degree in higher education, PhD, or master's. And so all these things we've. It won't help you with capital gains tax. It won't help you know what to do with. Yes, it will. It's the exact. It, it will. And again, see, the church has made it irrelevant by not talking about the things the Bible talks about. 
And so now we're starting to look like the European churches, where the European churches are often used for museums rather than places right. of worship. And we have not got a vibrant Christianity, and that's our fault for not taking these things and applying it and sharing with others that, that what the gospel does say about this stuff. You know, I helped start the Colorado Springs Pregnancy Center, and uh, one of the things, I used to be very involved in it. Now I'm, I still contribute, but I'm not on the board anymore. But one of the things we learned is that, like, I don't know the percentage, but the majority of women that came in and we gave a free pregnancy test, and we began to start showing them the statistics about their child, how it is a living mm -hmm. being, they had never thought this. They mm -hmm. just had accepted mm -hmm. a ungodly viewpoint that this is just a hunk of flesh, and most of them were honestly ignorant about it. Not U everybody, but most. U.S. Senator Sam Brambach introduced a bill in the Federal Congress. It's not going to go anywhere because he's in the wrong party, unfortunately. But it is that before you can have an abortion, you have to have a sonogram and see what you're about to abort. Sixteen states have already passed that. And he said the perfect confirmation of how good that bill was was he said he got a call from a lady one day at his office, a U.S. Senator. She was really irate. She said, I don't like your bill. She said, if I were to see what it was, I wouldn't want to abort it. Bingo. That's it. You know, and, and that's what we've seen in the 16 states that have passed that. Once people see what they, well, I was always told it's a blob of tissue, but I'm seeing fingers and hands, and I'm seeing a head there and eyes and a nose and you know, it's you know, a whole different thing. Second Corinthians, I mean, Second Peter 3, 9 talks about this, they willingly are mm -hmm. ignorant of. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what's happening. People have a morality or a lack of morality, a, a life view, and they don't want anybody coming along and saying that this is wrong, that you don't have the right to do yeah. this. And so they already have a bias, and they're going to reject anything that comes against the lifestyle that they've chosen. And this goes back to another failure of the church, because as many on any given Sunday, you're going to have about anywhere from 44 to 56 percent of the nation in church. But do you know that only 8% of the nation believes that truth is absolute? Now, uh -huh. how can you have more than half in church and have less than 10% believe the truth well, is absolute? Well, I believe that very few of the people that are in church are truly born again and have yeah. a relationship with God. They're just religious. And I often make this statement. I said, most people do not let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. People yeah, now right. are saying that their religious beliefs are based on their personal logic, right. their own conclusions. It's not drawn from Scripture. There is no absolute. Yeah. And that's why I've gotten away. I, I used to say years ago that we need to make sure that we elect Christians to office based on Proverbs 29, 2, that when the righteous rule, the wicked rejoice. I don't say that anymore. I don't want Christians in office. I want biblical yes. people in office. We need to yes. elect biblical people to office because Christian now is, is as much as a cultural thing as it is anything else. Now, it should be cultural in the right sense of influencing the culture and shaping the culture, but now the culture has defined Christianity, and that's a problem. Well, let me ask you. So we've talked about the church fail to mm -hmm. present the truth in the public arena, but and we've talked about education. What can we do with this education yeah. to change? What, what can be done? The, the first thing, I want to go back to something we talked about yesterday, revival. Um, with revival, people pray for revival. Judge thir Judges 13 is a great example of people praying for revival. You have people praying for revival, and that's a good thing. I don't have any trouble with them praying for revival. As long as that's not all they do. But they don't have a clue what they're asking for because every revival, either biblically or historically, spans decades. It's not like the Spirit of God swoops in and fixes all your problems and now you can go back to living. If I take George Whitfield as the perfect example of what a revival looks like, here's a guy involved in the Great Awakening, the most visible man there. He preached 32,000 sermons in 34 years. Now, that's 1,000 sermons a year. I don't think that's, that's, that's three a day, and I don't think that's real inspirational. I, you know, I don't, I don't think getting out there and pre And he did it off horseback. 
Now, he, he rode seven missionary journeys on horseback from Maine to Georgia and had a portable pulpit he carried on his horse with him. So that means he's out in all types of weather for all four seasons of the year. He pulls into a town. He pulls that pulpit down, crawls up, preaches, goes to the next town. There's nothing fun about what he's doing. Uh, on top of that, he faced a ton of opposition, and the opposition did not come from the secular folks. It came from the religious folks. He got his head chewed off by other preachers and ministers. They had they called him the great, the old lights and the new lights, and so he, he's doing this. So he goes through opposition. He, he's preaching at least three times a day. He's doing this on horseback for 34 years, seven journeys from north to south. The difference is that 80% of all Americans physically heard him preach a sermon. Wow. Now, how many communities do you have to be in? That sounds like a lot of work to me. Oh, by the way, revival killed him. Last two years of his life, he'd crawl up in that pulpit, preach his heart out. He'd go off the side afterwards and spit up his guts and spit up blood and then crawl back on the horse ride to the next town, crawl up in the pulpit, preach, get out of the pulpit, go over and spit up his guts. and It was killing him. So anybody who thinks revival is God's going to show up and change everything, they're crazy. Revival oh, is God cool. working through people, and it is hard work, and it is for a long period of time. So if you're praying for revival, are you really committed to it? Are you willing to be used for 34 years to, you know, to basically work your tail off? Because that's the way it always happens. Biblically, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Josiah, doesn't matter. They're revivals. Our first great awakening, our second great awakening, our third great awakening, our turn-of-the-century revivals, they all lasted decades. So you have to have a sense of duty, and most Christians don't. They have a sense of inspiration. They go from inspiration to inspiration. They don't go from duty to duty. And unless you get driven by duty, the only reason that Whitfield did what he did is it was what he was supposed to be doing. He didn't enjoy it. It was not fun. It was not fun getting chewed up by other people. It was not fun being the center of all their attacks. It was not fun being out in the hailstorms when it came. It was not fun having people throw stuff at him out of the crowd. But he did it because that's what he's supposed to be doing. And unless you get that kind of determination and commitment, we'll never see the nation turn around. If we're going to wait for God to come down by His Spirit and just turn it on His head, there's no biblical or historical precedent for that happening. Amen. Well, that's powerful. And you know what? I really believe that if people were to um, get the attitude that you're talking about. And again, I'm not against praying for revival, but if they would get to realizing that it is a total commitment of your mm -hmm. life and you are going to have to become vocal. You can't just sit here and pray for your neighbor, but you got to go over and talk yeah. to them and get involved and interact with them. Mm -hmm. If people would do that, we would see a lot more revival than what we're experiencing. Let, let me right throw now. out a, a numerical, a statistical numerical fact. America has been trying to, uh, no, excuse me, Christians have been trying to evangelize the world for 2,000 years. Right now, 33% of the world professes Christianity. If that 33% would just lead one person to Christ yeah. a year, at the end of next year, we've got two-thirds of the world. At the end of two years, the whole world is Christian. Sure. We've been doing this for 2,000 years and hadn't got there yet. Mm -hmm. That means there's a ton of Christians not even doing the basic thing of even leading one neighbor a year to Christ. And if we did something just one neighbor a year, We'd be a Christian world yeah. in two to three years. Yeah, I don't want to get totally off of what we're talking about, but that same principle, I've got a discipleship evangelism course. We teach that same thing, and this is what we're raising up Bible school mm -hmm. students and stuff that can reproduce their faith. And uh, we've got half a million people right now that are going through our course every now, week in it. Uganda alone, it. and we're seeing things happen. And that's the way that we were called to make uh, disciples, disciples, not converts. That's right. And that's where the church is. That's exactly And a lot right. of it, I'm sure, is because that Whitfield and other people didn't have the same diversions that we have today. But a person can go home and listen to a hundred channels, a mm -hmm. movie and different things that it just, 
amuses you. It numbs you. Yeah, we're, we're a very egocentric thing. As a matter of fact, if you look at why we tell people they need to become Christians today, it's all about them. It's not about God. Yeah. If you'll become a Christian, here's what God will do for you. Here's how you'll feel. Here's no, no, no. It ought to be, He's the great created universe. He's the sovereign. He wants you to be His follower, or this is what will happen to you. And you know, another thing that you've mentioned, and I hadn't said anything, but it fits here, is that you, you've mentioned that the founding fathers were absolutely convinced of the depravity yes. of man. And I've often taught yeah. on this same thing, whereas today it's the exact opposite. Everybody believes that men is basically good, and that if mm. you would just remove the impediments or give them a chance, they're going to succeed. And that's and it's a totally different paradigm. See, if they had believed that, our Constitution would not be here and would not work. Their their belief was, we want men to do the best. We're going to help them do the best. The only chance they've got of doing their best is through the Bible and Christ. But we also know that they're sinful by nature and there will be failure. So therefore, you have the Scripture says, the prudent man foresees the danger and hides himself. You've got to take some steps. If the, and so they said, all right, if, you're, if your president becomes wicked... How do you isolate the wickedness? Well, we'll do separation of powers. We'll mm. make sure the, that the court over here and the Congress over here can hold the president's wickedness to a minimum. And that now, was with the firm belief that that's the direction every one of us tend. 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 We, we, we all have to have checks left to ourselves. Left to ourselves, we tend to a bad state. And if you doubt that, look at world history. Mm -hmm. Look at world leaders. You know, Stalin's a good man. No, he wasn't. He, he attended to his natural depravity, as did Hitler, as did Pol Pot, as did uh, every other leader. We can go, just the 20th century leaders, we've had over 200 million put to death in the 20th century by government leaders who are not basically good. Mm -hmm. and, and to think that they are basically good flies in the face of history. It's Jeremiah 17:9 that says, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked, desperately wicked, who can know it? Unless you believe that, you'll never take the right steps because if you think, I'm naturally a nice person, I'm a good person, and, and that's where people are, man, that, that, that leads you in the wrong direction. So our founders' belief in depravity of man that if you didn't have a direct intervention of God and the Scriptures, that you would be depraved. And even after that, you still might have some trouble. Yeah. Uh, and that's why they put so many safeguards around the things that we do. Jeremiah also said in 1023, he says, O oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man yeah. that walks to direct his own steps. Yeah. We need divine intervention, and we need government with moral standards established that's right. through the Scripture to be there to restrain the depraved nature and, of And man. it can't be just our standards. Isaiah 64 says our righteousness is a filthy rags. You know I mean? We said, oh, here's what's right. No, he's the one who tells us what's right. If we don't get on his standards, we'll never reach the, where we need to. And so to allow human law to be based on what we feel or what we think or what we hope to happen, no, it needs to go back to immutable standards of right and wrong that he sets forth. And if you don't hold those standards, whether it be on marriage or whether it be on sexuality or, or sexual sin or anything else, if you don't hold those standards, you'll keep lowering the standards down and down and down and down and down. And depravity will take you down every time. Yeah. So to go back and summarize some things, we've talked about that the reason that we've gotten away from this godly heritage is because the church wasn't in the marketplace uh, teaching the Word of God. And then the education system uh, became corrupted, took God out mm -hmm. of it, actually began to in, uh, insert things that are completely contrary to what was intended. And the next thing that we're going to have to talk about, we're just about out of time today, but this will lead into tomorrow, is that uh, the judiciary in America mm -hmm. has become the driving force, really, for the uh, immoral, ungodly elements to make inroads into our society. Mm -hmm. And I know you've got a lot to share about that, but the judicial is going to have to be one of the things we talk about tomorrow. Sounds good.
Okay. So anyway, I want to encourage you once again that we have been sharing these things, not really just to talk about America, but to talk about the influence that God should have in your life mm-hmm. and then the way that we should relate to government, to our relationships with other men. And I tell you, I've been inspired by this, and I've gotten a, a lot of information from David that's going to make a difference in the way that I do things. And you know what? You can't give away what you don't have. And if you don't know yeah. the truth, you certainly aren't going to be able to be set free yourself or help somebody else. You know, there's a scripture that God's really used in my life in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, All things that pertain unto life and mm-hmm. godliness come through the knowledge of Him that has called you to glory and virtue. And then verse 4 says that by that knowledge is given unto us these exceeding great and precious promises. So your knowledge is you can't operate outside of what you know. And David, I've been ignorant on the stuff that you've been teaching. I know a lot of our people have, and I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this. I know you you do this all of the time, but boy, it's a blessing. Thanks, bro. It's a blessing. Thanks for having me. I I remember in your DVD series you were talking about if they would have had the brief history of every signer. Mm Mm-hmm. Of the Declaration as it was done for how long was that? And oh, it's generations we had that in public schools. And so that was uh, every child that went through school knew a brief history, yes. and, and they were 95% uh, very Christian. outspoken yes. Christian, most of them ministers. If they would have just known that one piece of information, mm-hmm. that would have stopped a tremendous amount of the lies and deception that are going mm-hmm. on. And so anyway, our education has omitted that and then turned around and done things like that book, The Godless Constitution, which is a total travesty on truth. And because of this, we've raised a generation of people that don't know the truth and therefore aren't free. Again, what was the quote by Abraham uh, Lincoln? Abraham Lincoln, uh, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. And that is exactly what's happened. In the, what was it, the 20s, they began probably right after the Second World War is when our education began to really go against the... uh, Yeah, the the philosophy started changing in the 1920s with Dewey and a bunch of guys because they came in with a real secular form. Then we went to compulsory education, so we're going to force you to get a secular education. Uh, They also philosophically changed the way we taught schools because prior to 1920, we always believed that God wanted you to use your mind. And that's the scriptures in Matthew 10, 16, so many others. And so up to then, we always taught students how to think. That was the key thing, was how do you think? And so Isaac Watts, a great theologian, the book we used in America for generations, century and a half, two centuries, was the right use of the mind, the improvement of the mind. And it's teaching you how to think, how to think the right way. And so in the 1920s, we got away from that and said, no, we don't need to teach, teach kids how to think anymore. We need to teach them how to learn. And so therefore, we, the teacher, will impart to them what they need to know and we'll be the filters to choose what they should know. And so to get them to spit it back at us, what we're going to do is we're no longer going to do essay questions on tests or forensics. We're now going to do true, false, multiple choice, and fill in the blank. And we'll teach them stuff, and we'll teach them to spit it back to us. And so our whole philosophy was now we're going to dump stuff into you, and we want you to spit it back at us, which is one of the reasons America's become so gullible. Oh, I heard that on the news. I saw that on the Internet. You know, we're used to just receiving and spitting it back out and not analyzing and thinking, no, wait a minute, that can't actually be. I mean, how can you have a godless constitution when 95% of the guys who wrote it were the, but we don't think. And so that 1920s, we started shifting the philosophy of education. Then right after World War II, we started shifting the textbooks, and we stopped talking about faith. We stopped talking about morality. We stopped talking about those traditional value type of things that are biblically grounded, 
and we just started making the whole history look secular. Well, if you grow up thinking, I live in a great nation and we have a secular history, then your logical premise is, let's stay a great nation, let's keep it secular. And that's really and so where we got instead of track. teaching you how to think, they taught you what to think. What to think. That's exactly it. And they basically indoctrinated you. And this led to, uh, you made a comment while we were having lunch today about how that you have uh, law schools that have gone to great effort to try and discredit you mm -hmm. because the law schools have now been taught this new version of everything. Yeah. And they have totally ignored history, and so therefore we've produced a group of activist That's judges right. that are actually rewriting the I, Constitution. See, I'm a great problem for law schools because I keep going back to original documents, and they don't want to do that. They want an evolving Constitution. We've evolved. We're 200 years more advanced than they we don't want. And, and so what I'll say is, on the law school website, it says that federal judges are appointed for life. Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution says they're not appointed for life. Well, that makes the law school look bad to actually go to the Constitution and say they're wrong. You know, they, the, the law schools on their websites will say uh, the judiciary is an independent branch. It's one of three co-equal branches. Well, I'll go to the Federalist Papers and say, no, the judiciary is specifically the weakest branch. It is not co-equal. It is under the regulation of the other two. Now, see, if I hadn't have listened to you and heard you quote those things on that thing and, and that present that little document, I would have thought, well, that's against everything I've been taught. And I it thought is. it was three equal branches. It's against everything you've been taught, but it's not factually right. It's and not against the Constitution. It's not against the Constitution. The Constitution is very emphatic. Judiciary is the unelected branch. Therefore, they have to be the weakest branch, and they have to be the one under the control of the other two. That's why judges can't appoint themselves to office. They have to be appointed by somebody who is elected. Uh, judges can't set their own salaries. The people who are elected have to set salaries. Judges can't even determine what all cases are going to take. The people who are elected determine what cases. So just in the same way that the president and the Congress is accountable to the people, the judiciary should be accountable to the people, but that's not what we see today. What we see today is that they have convinced us that they're supposed to be unaccountable to the people. Otherwise, how can they be independent? Thomas Jefferson had a great quote. He said, whatever body is independent is also absolute. If you can't get to them to help control them, then there is no accountability. And so what we have is an unaccountable judiciary. So if they go through, as they did in a, in a case a few years ago, the Congress, and I helped the Congress, and we worked on a law. We actually quoted the Constitution in telling the court what it could not do. We said, no way, you cannot deal with this, and this is the specific clause of the Constitution. And the court pops up and says, well, that's unconstitutional. You can't tell us what we can and can't do. Wait a minute, we quoted the Constitution to tell you what you could do. So what happens is who they... Who won that battle? Well, they did. Because the court? the court won. Because the only way you can get rid of them is you have to do what the Constitution authorizes in six places, and that's take them off the court. But to take them off the court, you have to have the support of the people. And the people all think, you can't tell the court what to do. They're an independent branch. We've been taught this for so long. And what we found was in Congress, even though Congress is willing to restrain activist judges, the people weren't willing to back them up on it because the people didn't know they should be so restrained. So they don't have the support of the people, and without mm. that, the Congress won't move because they're afraid of being real. Congress can't get much out in front of the people. Congress has got to figure out where the people's going to get in front of them, but it can't lead the people. Uh, and so that's why if, if Congress tries to lead in a di direction different from the people, that's when you get new Congresses because people say, we don't want to go there. Well, would to God we could get a new Supreme Court. Well, <laughs> and, and that is the key because that's what the debate has been for the last several presidential elections over what they call strict construction or originalist versus uh, the, the living document people. 
The strict constructionist says, look, according to the original documents, we in the court are the weakest branch, and we're not supposed to make policy. So our deal is we defer to Congress and the president. We won't make policy. Now, if you get guys on the court like that, they're not going to be activists. If you get a living Constitution guy on the court, he says, uh, we're supposed to rewrite the Constitution from decision to decision. It's an evolving document. It's in our hands. And therefore, here's what we want to do. And those are the guys that keep pushing the envelope. And, and what's amazing, I, I had a little debate once with a professor at the University of, of, of Iowa, and it was about separation church and state and religion in America, whatever. And he was a living Constitution guy, and I'm a, a strict construction guy. You keep it with the original intent until the people amend the Constitution. And so when my presentation is over, he said, okay, he said, I'll admit the Founding Fathers did not want a secular public square. The Founding Fathers wanted religions. They didn't want separation church and state like we've got. They didn't want it. He said, but my point is this. I don't care what they wanted. I think the Constitution should reflect what we want today. And so I, I acted. At that point, I had him. He didn't know it, but I had him. I acted really surprised. I said, you're kidding. You think the Constitution should reflect the values of people today? He said, that's exactly what I think. I said, I'm so glad to hear you say that because 82% of the people want daily prayer in public schools. 76% of the people want the Ten Commandments posted. 75% of the people, they want faith-based programs. 72% of the people want marriage between. And I went through all these things. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. He said, you got separation, church, and state? I said, time out. You just told Mm -hmm. me that didn't matter. See, the problem with a... Yeah, it's hypocritical. It is. And the problem with a living Constitution person is what they really want is they want a group of just a handful of people to tell everybody else what to believe. Yeah. I don't care if the Constitution evolves as long as we're the ones that do it. That's why we've added 27 amendments to the Constitution. You know, we wanted well, the Constitution didn't let 18-year-olds vote. We amended that. Okay, so some people that would uh, be taking an uh, exception with what you're saying would be saying, but wait a minute, this has never been done. The court has always ruled. Is there precedent, there is precedent of that the, us overriding and going against Absolutely, the all the time on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, you find that Thomas Jefferson ignored decisions of the Supreme Court, as did James Madison, as did Abraham Lincoln, as did Andrew Jackson, as did a number of people. Just they ignored the court because it was one of three branches. And, of course, uh, let me just point out that Abraham Lincoln is one of the obvious ones, that the Dred Scott yeah. case was not very long before Lincoln took office, and it basically said that a black slave was property and not Mm -hmm. a human individual. This is the original Dred Scott decision from the Supreme Court right there. That's one of the worst decisions in in judiciary history of the United States. This decision said that Dred Scott and blacks, uh, one of the famous quotes out of here is, no black has any right which a white man is bound to respect. So that is one of the famous quotes. This said, Congress cannot in any way limit slavery in any territory, in any state. Uh, slaves cannot be freed because they are property. And went through all this stuff. And so Abraham Lincoln said, watch this. He then abolished slavery in the territories. He abolished slavery in Washington, D.C. He freed slaves in the Emancipation Proclamation. All the things that the court told him he could not do. He, he just went through and promptly did it. And his first inaugural address, he said, now, if I'm going to obey the Supreme Court... Why do we have a president? Why do we have an election? Just let them run everything. He says, I didn't take an oath to uphold the opinion of the Supreme Court. I took an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution definitely gives Congress the power to limit slavery in the territories and D.C. And that's what he did. He went well, through you know, it. in our 
uh, day today. It's the 200th anniversary of his birthday, and people are referring to him and making speeches, quoting him and mm-hmm. stuff, and yet doing things completely opposite, opposite to what, of he what he's saying right there. That's right. And, and this is where having an understanding helps us, because a verse we talked about last week is Isaiah 126, where the, the Scripture says, I'll give you judges as at the beginning and lawyers as at the first. And he says, if I do that, you'll be a nation of righteousness. And I, I just find it, uh, again, profound that God ties the righteousness of a nation to the type of judges you have in that nation. So it becomes incumbent on me to choose presidents and to choose senators who will give me the right kind of judges. You know, I, I shouldn't care what their economic policy is going to be. I shouldn't care what their, what their moral policy is going to be. I should care, what are you going to give me for judges? Because that is the one thing the Word of God tells us will affect our righteousness, is the kind of judges we have. So when I look at a president, my first question should be not what are you going to do with the economy, not what are you going to do with the war, not what are you going to do with education. It ought to be what are you going to do with judges. And if you don't give me judges that give Amen. righteousness, then we're in trouble. My first question for senators shouldn't be, what are you going to do with the economy? What are you going to do with the, It ought to be, what kind of judges are you going to confirm? And, and that, that's a biblical basis. Now, having said that, the fun part is, what does it mean judges at the beginning and lawyers as at the first? Let me take an example. This is a book written by one of our very first federal judges in America. His name is Francis Hopkinson. Francis Hopkinson is uh, the guy who actually designed the American flag. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. But Francis Hopkinson is also a church music director and a choir leader. And what this book is, 1767, it's the entire book of Psalms set to music. This is the first time in America that we had a purely American hymn book. So here you have a federal judge who set the entire book of Psalms to music. And I've always wondered, how long would it take you to sing the book of Psalms if you Mm. were in a church? The book of Psalms, the hymn here is 62 pages long just for Psalms 119. So if you had Psalms 119, has seen. So this is what a judge was like at the beginning. The Word of God is the base of what they did. This is another example. This is the U.S. Supreme Court. This is 1792. The guys on the court were put there by George Washington. Three of them signed the Constitution. Two of them ratified the Constitution. And one of them wrote the Federalist Papers. They, would not, they had jury trials then in the Supreme Court. They would not let a jury go out to deliberate until they first had a preacher come in and pray over the jury that the jury would get the mind of God. Because they believed out of Second Chronicles 6 that they, they were supposed to rule in the place of God. And how could you have justice on earth if you didn't get a hold of the great judge of the universe? So we didn't let a jury go out until we had prayer over a jury that it would get the mind of God. And, and that's what our, our, our judges did. Um, we have you know so many examples of that. And we were talking even yesterday some of the black history. What's really cool is in America, back in this era, we had both black judges and white judges. Yeah, now this, was, this was something I was going to mention, that people who would be critical of your stance that the uh, judiciary is the least powerful of the three, they would cite, well, it was the Supreme Court that basically brought the end to segregation yeah. and overcame Congress and things like that. Yeah. Is that accurate? Let's take this. If it were up to the Supreme Court, blacks would still be slaves. It That's was right. Congress who said, we're in slavery. Watch us. It was the president who said, we're in slavery. Watch us. Supreme Court, get out of our way. Um, as a result of what Abraham Lincoln did and Congress passing the 13th Amendment in 1865, the 14th Amendment in 1868, and the 15th Amendment in 1870, uh, we were able to elect blacks in the federal Congress. 
Uh, the first blacks elected in Congress were just wonderful guys. You, you had Josiah Walls, you had Hiram uh, Revels, uh, you had Joseph Hayne Rainey, you had uh, R Robert Brown Elliott, all these great guys now, in Congress. Is that the first time blacks had ever been in? In the federal Congress. Mm -hmm. Now, they had been elsewhere in states, but in the federal level, the first time they had been, and they promptly joined with white Christians, black Christians, white Christians joined together. They passed 23 civil rights bills. Now, blacks in Congress were still in a minority, but they're in Congress. And that's a result of ignoring the Supreme Court. And that's back in the eight, late that, 1800s. That was 1870 that, that they were elected. Um, as a result of what happened with the 14th Amendment, you could st start electing blacks into southern state legislatures. Now, they could be elected northern state legislatures way back 200 years earlier. But in southern state legislatures where they had slavery, they, by state law, they said you can't be a black and hold office. The 14th Amendment, the federal constitution says, now you can. You, you, we don't have slavery anymore, and so you can't hold office. So promptly in Texas, 41 blacks were elected to office. In South Carolina, 190 blacks were elected to office. State legislature, 112 in uh, Mississippi, 99 in Alabama, 137. Now that's in the 18... This is all 1870, 1872. They're, they're in that range. You know, that's just amazing to me. It just, you wouldn't, I, personally, based on my experience, I wouldn't have thought that anything like that happened until oh. the 60s or something. No, they, they, they all, and, and you know, probably shocked people today, every single one of them was a Republican. Because the, it was the Democrat South who had slavery. It was the Democrats who fought Lincoln to keep slavery. When we voted on the, uh, the 14th and 15th Amendments, not a single Democrat in Congress voted for either of those amendments, for voting rights for blacks or civil rights for blacks. So every, every black that held office was a Republican at that point in time. Um, so what happens is now you've got the, the blacks and the whites in Congress side by side. They passed 23 civil rights laws, and one of the really cool laws they passed in 1875, Congress banned segregation straight out. We're not going to have segregation in housing, in transportation, in dining. We will not have segregation. Congress banned segregation. Oh, now that's radical. It, it, especially back I remember then, in my day segregation. when there was segregation. Now, what, what in changed, the 50s and 60s. That's right. What changed segregation was the Supreme Court in 1954 in the case called Brown versus Board of Education. The Supreme Court said, we're in segregation in education. We're, we're going to put this to an end. And people say, well, see, that proves the Supreme Court did the right thing. I got to go. Time out. Yeah. Let's go back to 1875. 1875, Congress banned segregation. In 1882, Over the objections, I'm sure, of the Supreme Court. Well, 1882, the Supreme Court struck down the law of Congress and said, you can't end segregation. We want segregation. The Supreme Court is what kept segregation alive for the next 70 years. Wow. Congress ended it in 1875. So they finally, in the, in the 60s, is when they finally they gave reversed in themselves. to the will of the people back in the 1870s. See, that's why the judiciary is such a problem, because if you have the wrong judges on there and they start making policy, they're usually out of touch with the will of the people. And that's, that's why you elect your legislators, you elect your president, but your judges, you don't let them make policy. They're out of touch with the people. Well, David, if people understood this, it would be so obvious as why we've had the racial tensions mm -hmm. and things like this. Because even back in the 1700s, there were, uh, you, I heard you say that Boston had desegregated. Let me give you some, some just interesting facts. I have a lot of fun with this. 1768, a guy named Wentworth Cheswell, a black is elected to office in New Hampshire. He's elected first as a town father in his town. 
He is elected to the school board. He is elected as a city assayer, uh, the, the city assessor. He is elected as a town moderator. He is elected as the town judge. Uh, he is elected to the Constitutional Convention to write the Constitution. But wait a minute, he's a black back in the 1700s. They don't do that back. Yeah, they did. You see, in that New England area, they had taken the Bible base and the Bible taught in Acts 17 and in Revelation 7 that all men were equal. And so we had blacks elected to office way back in the 1700s. And what's really funny is we, we hear about the midnight ride of Paul Revere. You know, Paul Revere going to warn the mm -hmm. patriots. Riding with him that night was a black patriot, a black and a white patriot. So the black patriot was Wentworth Cheswell. The white patriot was, uh, was uh, Paul Revere. Now, Paul Revere ends up getting word to a church out here at Lexington, and that's where the shot heard around the world was. Lexington, you have the first battle of the Revolution. What happened was Jonas Clark was the preacher. He got his church out there to face the British, 150. And after the battle was over that morning, there were 18 Americans laying on the ground. Those 18 Americans laying on the ground were both black and white. They all went to church together. You had blacks like uh, Prince Esterbrook and whites like John Robbins laying on the ground that day after the well, battle was over. I tell you, David, I've been taught basically that, that uh, the oppression of the blacks and slavery and all of this has been since the founding, that that was even yep. a part of it. Of course, the three-fifths clause, you explained yep. that so wonderfully. It is totally and it's different not what we're true. taught. Actually, you said something to me that I think it was, what, only one-third of the um, nation when we signed the Declaration was pro-slavery? Of the founding they, fathers, about 70% of the founders were anti-slavery. About 30% were pro-slavery. And to this day, we will always hear about the pro-slavery founding fathers. We'll never hear the abolitionist guys. We'll never hear up in New England the, the, the hero of the Battle of Yorktown was a black patriot, James Armistead. The hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill was a black patriot, Peter Salem. We'll never hear that. What we're going to hear is the oppression, and it did happen, yeah. but we'll never get yeah, that. And we aren't trying to say that it didn't happen, but it again, did happen. there was a freedom movement that was based in the Bible. In the Bible. And actually, the Supreme Court was Got in the way of it. a hindrance of it for probably 100 years, close to 100 years, or we would have been desegregated as a nation. We wouldn't have had the, the, late the stuff 1800s. that we had in the, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s if the Supreme Court had gotten out of the way which is why it's so important, the kind of judges you have on and the And today court. we see the Supreme Court, I believe, legislating from the bar and causing most of our, or I could say many of our social ills today. Mm -hmm. And this is just my summary. You can jump in and correct me anytime, but this is what I've gotten from it, that the way that things started changing in this nation is that, first of all, the church got out of the public uh, marketplace ministering mm -hmm. the Word of God. They withdrew to their churches and just began to start ministering on spiritual things and not into the public square. That left a vacuum that allowed our education system to come in and totally take out all of the truth of what our nation was really like and the religious influence on our nation that has formed opinions that I'm guilty mm -hmm. of, David. I hate to admit it. And I thought I was pretty unscathed <laughs> from this, but... I've had a lot of attitudes that have been instilled in me because of ignorance and lack of truth. And then that gave rise to, once the education system changed, the, uh, the uh, law uh, teaching, uh, training of lawyers has been skewed mm -hmm. so that today they have a different view of the Constitution and they're legislating from the bench. And we've been talking about that. But one thing I want to do today, we've established all of these things and here's the problem and Man, we're so far removed from what we need to be. And this, I'm sure, has a tendency to overwhelm some people and maybe make them um, 
discouraged about mm-hmm. how are we ever going to turn this around. And what I want to do today, you were telling me some really positive things yeah. that are happening. And I believe that with this truth going out and stuff that we can make a difference and we can see a revival and a godly return to these things. One of the biggest problems we have to fight is we have to fight perceptions. Because if you were the children of Israel uh, and you were on the verge of the promised land back in the Bible, you've gone through the wilderness, you fought Og and you fought Bashan, you've fought, seen all the victories, you're on the, ready to go in, and here comes your media back to you. And 10 of the 12 media reporters say, oh, man, the giants there are huge. There's no way we're going to get our tails kicked on this. And two of the, the, the 12 reporters say, no, they, there are giants there, but God's bigger than they are. And, and so our problem is we're kind of like they are. Most of the reports we hear are very negative. And if you're not careful, you get discouraged and you say, oh, man, this is all shot. Well, if they could have just gotten over the river and seen what was over there and what God had planned, they'd have been all right. But they believed the negative reports, and it really hurt them. So there is a ton of good stuff going on in America. Uh, and I'll, well, I'll tell you. we need to hear it. There, there is a lot. And part of it is that, you know, we talked two days ago about revival and how revival spans decades, which means God is working all across that period of time to do things to move the nation back. He, just, he doesn't get to the end and say, okay, now I'm going to put the nation back to healthy. He starts working all the way through. So if you're looking for it, you'll see God's fingerprints all over things, all over the place. But the perception is it. And so what, what I'll often say to people is, okay, in America, you, you guys sitting in the crowd, we've got 435 elected U.S. congressmen and 100 elected U.S. senators. That is 535 elected members of our U.S. Congress. Name me all the members you've seen on TV in the last year. I'll get five, six, seven names. I'm glad you didn't ask me because I would have had less. Uh, I don't even watch news. But that's it. (laughs) We get our perception off of scene five or six or seven or eight out of 535. It's like I could go into a church and say, I'm going to find the ten worst members in this church. I'm going to do a program on the ten worst members. I'm going to make this church look really bad. Well, I could do it, but that wouldn't be an accurate reflection of what's there. Now, what happens is you have a secular media that thinks very secularly, they're therefore going to feature secular thinking people. And that's what you're going to see. And if you're not careful, you say, you know, all those guys in Congress, are all, they're all really rotten in their thinking. There's no difference between the parties. They're all the same. And you get this thing because that's what you see on TV. They'll pick secular guys from, from both houses, and, and that's what you'll see. I will tell you right now that on any given Tuesday or Wednesday in the U.S. Congress, we have 120 members of Congress and one of four Bible studies going on in Congress. Bible studies and prayer meetings, and I will tell you even more than that, they have accountability groups. Uh, One of our former congressmen, Steve Largent, great guy um, out of Oklahoma, pro football player. Steve, I remember talking to him and talking to some other members of Congress. He started little accountability groups. And I remember talking to one of the guys in the groups, and there was an accountability group of like four guys. And there'd be four guys in these groups. And they'd get together, and this would be the questions they'd ask. They said, you know, um, I, I saw how you voted today on the bill, and you're going to explain to me, you're going to have to explain to me out of the Bible why you voted that way, because I don't see a biblical reason for oh, you to vote the way you God. did. Now, I don't think most of us would want to be called on the carpet like that, but that's what these accountability groups do. And so they have these accountability groups, these prayer groups. We now, for the first time in the history of Congress, actually have what's called the Congressional Prayer Caucus. And there's about 60 members in this. 
and they come back into Congress every week on a Monday night or Tuesday night, and they start their votes. These guys always get to Congress early. They always go to room 219 in the U.S. Capitol. They get out on their knees, and before they cast any votes, they go to God. They seek God. They get before His face and say, God, show us what we need to do. Heal the nation. And they pray for the country. They pray for the people. They pray for the things they're about to deal with, that they have the mind of God on it. So you get 60 members of Congress on their knees before they cast a vote on anything. I don't think I've heard that in the no, news. No, I haven't um, ever heard that. There is There was one occasion where I had one of the congressmen tell me something that was really, really intriguing. Um, they had a really hard vote coming up, and the leadership of their parties was really riding them hard through the whip system. They tried to get these guys to vote a certain way. And when it came time for the vote, there were about 60 members of Congress he couldn't find, and it was going to be a really tight vote. And both sides wanted their votes, and, and, and they looked for these guys, and they normally hold a vote in 15 minutes, and they couldn't find these guys, so they kept holding the vote open more and more. And, and they finally found 60 of them, in a tiny little room about the size of a closet, and they were packed in there praying together, saying, God, how do you want us to vote on this bill? Don't mm-hmm. care what our parties say. What do we need to do to please you? And so you get 60 guys crammed in a closet praying, and one of the ladies who was in there told me about what was going on. Man, we don't hear anything like no, that. No, I've never heard that. And, and, and very rarely do we watch what goes on uh, with the records of Congress. But at the end of every session of Congress, every day, they have what are called special orders. And special orders are when the congressmen get up and they can speak one minute or five minutes or 30 minutes or hour, whatever they want, on any issue they want. We've got a ton of these guys that get up and speak spiritual messages and say, hey, you need to know about the Christian heritage of America. Let me tell you about the Bible, the American Revolution, done in 1782 by the Founding Fathers. Let me tell you about the prayer groups. Well, they'll never report that on the news. But it's on C-SPAN, but who watches C-SPAN? Well, not see, me. It's out there, but we just don't see it. Because, see, what happens is in America today, um, when, when Nixon ran for president back in the 60s, the average soundbite of the media, when you heard a candidate speak, you're going to get 68 seconds of the candidate speaking. Wow. Today, it is 6.8 seconds. I, I would have thought it was less than that. So it's unless you can short. say something in seven or eight words, you don't get it. You know, we're, we've been so edited out. So we got that in Congress. I will tell you that because of the, uh, of the people rediscovering heritage and history and God and, and history and finding out that Christians really should be involved and that out of the 56 guys who signed the Declaration, 29 of the Founding Fathers had seminary degrees. There's Christians. And so finding out that, these guys have started running for office. And, and I've been in Congress before. I remember being there one time when the swearing-in was going for the freshman, which happens the first week of January every two years. And while we were there, I had some congressman being sworn in, come off the floor, up the gallery. I'd never seen them. I didn't know who they were. And they said, you know what? We heard you talking about Christians getting involved in politics years ago, and that's why we're here today. Because we wanted to be involved. And there are so many congressmen like that. Uh, We've got state legislators like that. Uh, One of the things we deal with is we're blessed to deal with between five and seven hundred state legislators who are biblical Christian folks just dedicated. This week we were talking to a legislator in Oklahoma. This legislator in Oklahoma has just gotten a bill passed to post the Ten Commandments right there on the state capitol where everybody sees it coming in and out. And just in talking to the guy, he will not back up from his faith in Christ. He doesn't care if you're the New York Times interviewing him. He's going to share the gospel with you and why God has to be involved in America and why we have to get back to moral law. 
And he's just, it's encouraging to be around guys like well, that. I tell you, that's tremendous because I've never heard any of these things. No. My, my opinion is that I'm very strong in my faith and stuff, and I'm basically going to go on with God with or without other people. But There's a I, ton of folks out there. It's like when Elijah went off after the confrontation with the prophets of, of Baal, and he gets in that little hole and he says, God, get me out of here. I'm the only one left. God said, I got 7,000 guys and never bow there. Near. You don't no. even know of. And, and that's the way it is. We get discouraged because we think we're the only ones out there. But there are, I mean, there are tens of, I'll I tell you one of the real encouraging things to me in a revival, and we were talking about revival a couple of days ago, a characteristic of revival is not only that it spans decades, but one of the characteristics is it always involves training a new generation that gets it right. And so God didn't let the old guys go into the promised land. He said, you guys are all dying off. It's going to be the young guys that go in and get it right because you guys have already messed it up. Mm -hmm. So it's the young guys that get to go in and, and, and do the things right. And if you look back at our great awakening in America, that, that national revival, 1730 to 1770, without it, we don't have America. What's really fun is the famous preachers preaching at the great awakening. You had folks like Samuel Cooper. You had folks like Samuel Davies, the greatest pulpit preacher in America at that time. You had George Whitfield. Um, you had Gilbert Tennant, all these famous preachers. Interestingly, they all had some kids running around with them, just hanging around with them in those revival years. Well, the kid that was hanging around with the Reverend Samuel Cooper ended up being a young man named John Adams. Hmm. And the kid that was hanging around with Gilbert Tennant ended up being a young man named Benjamin Rush. Wow. And the kid that was hanging around with Reverend Samuel Davies ended up being a young kid named Patrick Henry. And so what you find is that all wow. these young people that were there in the revival became the leaders in the next generation. So the founders of this nation were birthed in revival. Were birthed Directly. in revival. They were the generation that came out of that. And, and so w what I see in Judges 13.5 is... Judges, the people are calling for revival. God, we're in a bad culture. We can't worship you. Our culture's all wrong. Deliver us. Verse 5, God sends an angel to earth and says, Okay, I've heard the prayers of this people. I'm going to deliver them. Here's how it works. Angel went and looked up Manoah. I said, Manoah, God's heard the prayers of this people. He's going to deliver the nation. You've been praying for decades. He's going to do it. Here's how it works. Your wife gets preg pregnant, and when that kid grows up, he's the national deliverer. Whoa, time out. I thought you said you answered my prayers. i got to wait 20 years for the kid to grow up? Hmm. What happens is God often answers the prayers for revival by sending you a new generation that gets it right. Hmm. So right now, one of the things that I really love going on, there's a legal group, Alliance Defense Fund, that here in America, they take the top kids out of the law schools in the nation, first and second year law kids. I think one year we had kids, number one kid out of Harvard, number one out of Yale, number one out of Pepperdine, you know, top kids. But these are kids who feel like God has called them into the legal field, and someday they want to be federal judges. Well, we get to intern them for 12 months out of every summer. We know what their secular law school teaches, but we're dealing with about 120 kids a year every summer that feel like God's called them to be federal judges someday. Wow. You know what that means 20 years from now if the Lord tarries? What kind of judges we're going to have, these kind of oh, kids awesome. that are just... But David, you don't hear things like that. You don't hear this. things like that. That's but the they're reason out this there. is so important that we share some of this good news. It's out there. there there's another one that's really exciting. And, and I really do believe that we're probably in a national revival. But the trick is yeah. you never know until historians look back 50 years from now and say that was revival. But the millennials are those who are born in the 1980s. Millennials in America, the young people born in the 1980s. So that means they're in the 20s right now. Well, there's a lot of industries that want to make money off those kids. They want to sell them shoes and, and cars and clothing and, and technology and phones. And so the largest 
survey ever done of the millennials was done by a marketing firm out of New York who wanted to see how do we set things up to sell to these kids. And in polling the kids, they found that of those born in the 1980s, 94% of them respect monogamy and parenthood, 88% respect the U.S. Constitution, 86% respect the U.S. military, 84% respect marriage. And you go down the numbers, one that caught me, 88% of those kids respect the Constitution. 88% of the congressmen in Congress don't respect the Constitution. Well, and we've got a whole generation coming up that does. That's tremendously encouraging. But my first thought is that i just not sure I believe those figures because it's so counter to everything that you hear. See, here's what it is. God, uh, let me give you one more stat. And, and, and I'm not saying that you aren't right. No, I'm hoping that but, you are, but I'm saying it's so opposite. Well, here, here's the how, danger how with that. There's a danger with it. Let, let me go back to something for a minute. Two years ago, America, for the first time, became a majority pro-life nation. We now have 53% of Americans who say they believe that abortion is morally wrong. We, we'd been at 41%, 43%. You know, we were plurality, but now we're full majority. Okay, so two years ago, we become majority pro-life nation. Do you know that the same point in time, young people, 72% opposed abortion on demand. Only 53% of the nation, but 72% of young people. Now, my first question is, how did those kids get 20 points more pro-life than everyone who teaches Good them? Good question. You know, they're 20 points more pro-life than the parents or teachers. And I'm finding that in all these categories. And the answer is back to Judges 13.5. God sends you a new generation with a different set of values. Now, here's the trick, and here's where the church has to step up. Just as God has sent this generation, and I, and I can prove it statistically, um, the enemy knows this generation has been sent. So the enemy is going to do the best he can to pick those kids off. They've got the right values, but if their mind is not trained, if the church has not trained their mind to defend their faith, to be able to handle their faith, they're going to get picked off. And that's why right now between 71 and 88% of Christian kids lose their faith while they're in college. They do not know how to defend their faith. They, they know what they believe. They don't know why they believe it. And that's where the church and Christians, we have to step up with these young people and say, here's what God has planned for you. And by the way, here's the attacks that will come on your faith. And by the way, here's how you answer them. And when this professor with 14 PhDs comes after you, here's what you tell him. You know, we have to be able to equip those kids. So uh, I, that's why I think counterintuitive, it doesn't look right because we're losing such a high percentage. But on the other hand, they all have the right values. It's just that we've got to be able to shepherd them and, and guard those values as they get through to where God wants them to be. And that really is going to be the task of the church and, and Christians over the next few years is making sure that we take these kids that God has given us and make sure that we see them come in to run business and medicine and, and theology and pulpit and government and presidents and governors and law schools and you know all these things. Well, I tell you, these things you're saying are really encouraging to me. And what it does, it makes me want to be more vocal, more mm -hmm. strong, because you can see that, hey, it's making a difference. Otherwise, you feel like, what's the use? Yeah. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, yep. and I might as well just retreat to my four walls and preach to the Christians. That's right. You know, there is, we were talking a couple of days ago about how hostile the media is toward our values, and, and they really are. Um, but one of my friends in political life did a survey, paid $400,000 for the survey, and he's a well-known public figure. You'd instantly recognize him if I called his name, a national figure. And he found out that there are 94 areas in which Americans have 60% agreement on basic conservative moral issues. Now, you never know that if you listen to the news. You'd think that we who hold traditional moral values, we're the absolute fringe out there. You know, we're the last 
the last remnant of something. But he found that 94 areas, we have 60%, and in something like 60 areas, we got 80% agreement. Wow. And so what he learned was he said, you know, I have now figured out, he said, I used to be concerned about how I looked in the media image, and if the media came after me, I'd, you know, I'd try to look. He said, I've now figured out that if the media comes after me, my response should be, that's great. That means at least 60% of Americans agree with me because the media is so far out there, and probably 80% of Americans agree with me. Mm -hmm. And so we get so inundated with attacks that make us look like we're minimized and make us look like we're, you know, we're really the extreme fringe when we are not the extreme fringe. Mm -hmm. and, and I get interviewed from time to time. I remember the New York Times called me at one interview, and they said, um, you know, you're a representative of the religious right. We'd like to talk to you. And I said, okay, before we go any further, I've got to know something. You considered me be part of the fringe. Now, I am part of that 90% of Americans who think we should have under God in the pledge. I am part of the 82% of Americans who think we should have daily prayer in schools. I am part of the 76%, and I went through all these percentages. I said, mm -hmm. so now if I represent the fringe at 76 to 90%, what does it take to be mainstream for you guys? You know? I mean, if, that probably if, killed the interview right there. Oh, it did. There. It did. They it, didn't want to talk to Because they anymore. want to portray me as part of the fringe, and I'm saying, no, I'm in the 70 to 90% range. You guys are the and friends. And you know, that makes a good point, that if the church looks at us as we are the weirdos, and, the, and yeah. if we see ourselves that way, and if we accept the, the humanist, secular view of us and start from that position, we've lost in the very in beginning. The, very, the scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If we think we're a minority that, that is under fire, we'll act like a minority yeah. under fire. If we think that, you know, we have the solutions, we have the answers, we are on the winning side, we're supposed to be offensive-minded, and we are not in the minority, we'll act like that as well. I've often told people that it shouldn't be us that feels embarrassed when we stand mm -hmm. for morality. It ought to be all of the perverts. Mm -hmm. And I say that in love, but it ought to be the perverts, the weirdos who feel strange, mm -hmm. not us. We're the ones that are standing for what is correct. And yet most Christians feel exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. So, David, I tell you, this has been tremendous, and I'm encouraged. It's really blessed me, and I believe that it's helped our uh, viewers, too. I believe it's going to make a difference. Well, thanks for having me on it. It's good to share this with folks. And you know what? Appreciate You've been it. a very easy person to talk to. <laughs> you too, Andrew. I tell you, you what, you are, uh, you're a bottomless reservoir for all of this stuff. I'm sure we could have gone another two weeks if the <laughs> two of us could put up with it and, and last that long. Well, that's kind of you. Thanks, But that's bro. tremendous. This is a departure in a lot of ways from what I do. But what we're talking about is just an application mm -hmm. of the Word of God in your life. And we're trying to get uh, Christianity out of just the four doors of the church, get it yeah. out of the salt shaker and out into the world. And this is basically what the founding fathers of the yep. United States did. They laid That's their right. life down. And many of them, of course, I'm sure you could go for an hour or two on that, but many of these people literally put their life on the line. They lost their fortunes, their mm -hmm. families. They were tortured. I, I couldn't call the guy's name, but uh, you talked about one of the preachers, I think, who was tortured. He became a general and was yeah. tortured and uh, uh, died of the health issues that he got right. while in captivity That's from right. the British. And these people literally put their lives on the line to take the truths and to put them into a public uh, forum. And that's what we've got to do. And I tell you, this isn't everything that we need to know, but I tell you what, it stirred me up. I'm sure it stirred many of you up, and hopefully it's going to motivate us to get out and do something. Again, David, thank you so much for coming. I believe that this is going to make a difference, and, and hopefully we're going to raise up some leaders that's out right. of this as a fire. Good. And praise God, this may be a part of the next revival. That's right. Starting exactly right, right here today.